one of the key lessons that I learned again during COVID is the lesson of the micro market. And so I don't have a macro crystal ball, right? And what I mean by the lesson of the macro or the micro market rather is like different markets perform totally differently during COVID. You know, you take a market like Utah where you actually had unemployment go down during COVID, right? And you take a market like New Jersey where unemployment, you know, skyrocketed during COVID, right? And then you look at the micro markets in between all those markets and like there's all kinds of craziness, right? You look at what's going on in, you know, Dallas, Texas right now where there's huge population growth, tons of companies that are coming in and saying, you know, that they're moving their headquarters there. And so you would think instinctually, I should go buy office in Dallas. Well, we think office is oversupplied in Dallas. So we're not buying office in Dallas, right? And so like, there's all of these micro market considerations to be had. And so I don't have a macroeconomic crystal ball, but I think that the micro crystal ball is try and de-risk deals in any way, shape or form that you can, right? And, and one of the ways to do that today is to lock in interest rates. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug with the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Gillian Hellman. Now, Gillian is the founder and CEO of Realty Mogul, one of the top online marketplaces for investors to invest in institutional quality real estate here in the United States. Now, Realty Mogul was recently named the number one real estate commercial crowdfunding platform by Motley Fool. And to date, get this, investors have invested in over 300 unique transactions and over $3 billion of a capital has been raised on the Realty Mogul platform. Gillian has also been featured as an expert on startups and real estate alike on Bloomberg, CNBC, the New York Times, Yahoo Finance, and entrepreneur.com. To say I'm a little bit excited to have her on the show today is an understatement, but I'm gonna get enough out of me. Let's get her out here. G'day Gillian, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thanks so much, Reed. Excited to be on with you. 
That's uh, it's awesome to have you. And I want to start the the conversation like I start every every episode. Uh, rewind the clock and uh, tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. This one's kind of embarrassing, but I love the question. So I was an extra in a Ken Griffey Jr. baseball commercial, and no that was way. the first. I got paid to be an extra. I mean, who could believe? I was probably like. I don't know, five or six years old. Why I was an extra on a Ken Griffey Jr. baseball commercial, I have no idea. And that was my only foray into the acting world. But um, that is how I made my first ever dollar was an extra on a commercial. Well, I will say that is the most interesting response I've ever had. Everyone's like mowing lawns <laughs> and selling lemonade. And I'm just like, yeah, who cares? like if you say lemonade or lawns, I'd be, I'd be like, okay, the show's over. But no, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> so you're an extra in an ad. Were your parents yeah. involved in the, 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 the Hollywood scene? To- no, not at all. I, I think that like one of my close friends got asked to do it and then asked if she could bring me along and then they threw me in the scene. It was something like that. So very awesome. random. And, you know, I, I'm not a... Uh, a childhood movie star by any stretch of the imagination. I can't even find the commercial. I've never, in my adult life, I've never even seen it. So if someone would, wants to try and find it and dig it up and send it to me, I'd love it. But that, I, I don't actually know, uh, you know, where it is out in the ether. That's a challenge. I think that's a challenge for people to, to, get, to get over <laughs> and start Googling. Um, but but that's an incredible story. But now walk us through how you've created. Now, for, for me personally, I know Realty Mogul really, really well. It's been one of the early adopters of crowdfunding but I want to know the story before Realty Mogul. How did you get involved in wanting to be your own CEO? You're an entrepreneur. Did you have a career beforehand? What was that like for, for Gillian Hillman? Yeah, I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. So my dad's an entrepreneur. My mom had entrepreneurial you know, business pursuits. I have multiple siblings who are CEOs of you know, their own companies and their own endeavors. And so I, I really learned about business like at the dinner table. I'm the youngest in my family. I'm the youngest of seven. So I have wow. six brothers and sisters. And we just, we talked a lot. You know, we talked a lot about business. My dad would come home and talk about what was going on with his company. And I always knew that I wanted to do something you know, in business. I went to business school at Georgetown came out of there and I went to work in banking. So my, my first career kind of before Realty Mogul was in banking, worked in strategic planning, worked in marketing, but spent the majority of my time in wealth management. So working for you know wealth management firm, working with high net worth individual clients in addition to some nonprofits and endowments. And you know the wealthiest clients were real estate investors. And I'd grown up in a real estate family. My grandfather developed property in Los Angeles. My mother was in luxury residential real estate. And my father owned commercial and office uh, real estate through his businesses. So, so I knew about real estate, you know, kind of going back to the dinner table and found that our wealthiest clients are real estate investors. Oh, it has had a passion for real estate. And so when the Jobs Act came out in 2012 and I read through sort of crowdfunding, which was the first change to the securities laws in, you know, decades upon decades upon decades, I didn't want to apply to startups. I didn't want to apply to small businesses, but I thought, could you apply this to real estate? And when I got sort of the answer um, on the regulatory front of, yeah, you could, there's nothing limiting your ability to do that. Uh, I quit my, my day job and I launched Real Mogul in earnest. That is, that is awesome. Uh, I will say poor mom and dad, seven kids. That's a lot. <laughs> that would have been growing up in a household full of mayhem. I, I've got friends who've got four kids. I'm like, geez, that's, you're, out, you're outnumbered already at three. So seven, okay. seven would be, would have been, would have been nuts. Uh, but let's talk about the Jobs Act because I've had a lot of people on here talking about crowdfunding. And as an outsider, right, I'm just going to put my hand up. With two, sitting, sitting in 2021, so 11 years, sorry, nine years later since the Jobs Act, when I first moved to the United States, I saw a lot of 
come quick, come to market. You guys who are like, we're going to raise money and, and be real estate crowdfunding. I feel as if a lot of those pretenders have gone away, but yet Realty Mogul has seemed to stay the distance. What, what, why is that? And, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about how you've stayed the distance with, with so much turbulence in and around online crowdfunding. Yeah, I think in general, people struggle with a long-term mindset. You know, it takes a lot of self-discipline to, to have sort of that long-term mindset. And, and only today, you know, almost 10 years in, do I feel like we've got a lot of it figured out, you know, but it, it took a very long period of time. I mean, the challenging thing, it's a dual-sided marketplace. So just taking a step back outside of real estate, you know, anytime you're trying to build a business that's a dual-sided marketplace, you're building two businesses and you have to build them at the exact same time for the main business to work. Right. And so like, I was incredibly naive when I started the business, knowing what I know now, I would never build a two-sided marketplace. I would go build, you know, one product, one company, one customer, uh, because it's really double the effort and double the work and double the failure rate. Right. And so I'm not surprised that a lot of companies that try to jump into this business have struggled to, you know, complete their destiny, if you will. Um, so you're building two businesses at once on one side of the marketplace, we've got these real estate companies they come to us and they use the realtor mobile marketplace to raise capital for their deals. On the other side of the marketplace, we've got a very vast network of investors who are coming to the realtor mobile marketplace to find, you know, vetted underwritten commercial real estate transactions. And we're the marketplace sitting in the middle in between those two constituents. And so you had to build two businesses at once. And I think that that's a big part of it is it takes a long time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of focus. You know, we as a business have continued to just narrow and narrow and narrow our focus. In the early days, we had a lending business and an equity business. We decided that we couldn't be the best in the country at lending. And so we ended up selling that business in 2015. And we said, but we can be the best in the country at, you know, medium balance or small balance equity. And so that's really what we're focused on today is allowing investors to gain access to equity investments in real estate and narrowing that focus. And I think there's other companies that didn't narrow that focus and just weren't patient enough. You know, in the early days, you know, almost 10 years ago, it was scary to invest on the internet. You know, people weren't comfortable putting their banking credentials on a you know website that maybe they'd heard about one or two times. And it's a different world today. You know, and I think COVID helped to accelerate that and that we're all working out of home offices. You know, you're not sitting in front of your wealth manager. You're not, you know, meeting in person and, and sort of whining and dining the old fashioned way. And so people had to get more comfortable investing online and, you know, using digital platforms and using digital credentials and all of those types of things. But it's just, it's taken a long time for the market to catch up. And I think that, you know, companies like ours who have said, we're going to take a long view, you know, it's not a race to the finish line. Let's build a great business. Let's do it slow and steady. You know, this is, this is a life's endeavor for me, right? It's not a, it's not a blip on the radar. I mean, I think that this is the, the biggest company that I will ever have the pleasure of being involved with. And, and certainly that I'll have the pleasure of leading. And so, I've got a long-term perspective and I think that, you know, that set us apart in the early days. And, you know, again, now almost 10 years in, we, um, we've got a lot more predictability around the business and it, it feels like we're in a really, really great place. And you bring up a couple of, I was jotting down some notes here. And I think one of the big things that has helped with the long-term mindset is brand recognition, right? I think that you, you, you mentioned the attracting of the investors and I've had a few other CEOs on this show about crowdfunding who essentially it's like a, you're, you're a marketing agency, right? You have to build the trust with those investors because like you said, historically you haven't been cruising around on the internet at midnight, you know, how he's a, he's a hundred thousand dollar investment. I'm just going to make, you know, into, into a you know class B multifamily in Texas. You're not just going to do that and changing 
that mindset, I think, has been what I, at least from an outsider's perspective, and interviewing a couple of the CEOs, been the hardest part, right? Trying to get that. So how have you broken down that outward-facing trust for people to say, I want to be and invest with Realty Mogul uh, and the deals that they put on their platform? Yeah, I mean, I think in response to that, I would start with saying we are in no way, shape, or form a marketing agency. So like, <laughs> we, we are as far from being a marketing agency in how we operate and our culture and our core values than you could possibly imagine. And, and I think that, you know, this may sound sort of corny, but I think that it starts with culture. You know, our, our second most important core value is protect the investor. And that means that we do due diligence on all of our offerings. We're running background checks and criminal checks and reference checks. I mean, most of our clients, not all of them, but most of them, you know, I have a personal relationship with, I've broken bread with them. I know them through, you know, other networks like YPO or other real estate networks. Um, we also have another core value that's details matter. You know, we, we dive into the details and we walk every property. We actually fly to the properties, even during COVID, you know, masks in tow, to be able to look at the property, look at the location. You know, we vet the pro forma numbers. We dig into the, the Excel files. Um, and then our number one core value is sleep well at night. Mm -hmm. And that is for our team, for our investors, for our sponsors, you know, call it karma, call it doing the right thing. So, so I think that, you know, our ability to get investors to trust us is because we're trustworthy, mm -hmm. not because we're a good marketing agency. Right. And obviously right. we have to have marketing and we spend money on digital ads and all the like. I mean, that's just the basics to, to build a business today. But I think that it it comes down to like we're trustworthy. Right. And that doesn't mean that every investment performs at 100 percent of where you expect it to. What it means is that if there's something going awry, we're going to tell you about it. Right. We're not going to hide under the covers. Right. We're, we're the company that like we believe in open and straightforward and transparent communication. You know, I, I tell my team, you know, if you're delivering good news, go ahead and use email. If you're delivering bad news, do it in person. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's been more challenging, obviously, during COVID, but like we're, we're not afraid to have those conversations. And so I, I'd say we we earn the trust of people by being trusted. I, I, I completely agree with that. And, and I well, I think my, my, what my sentiment was, was talking about in the early days, trying to educate people in a way using marketing to say this is what the new future is, because so many people were coming away from that mano a mano breaking bread. This is how deals are done. This is how real estate's done. And then bringing it to an online platform was like, what, what, like <laughs> I, what that's, that makes no sense. So when I say marketing, I meant more like educating the consumer to be more at ease with the process of, of investing online rather than the mano a mano, which has historically been, um, what has been some of the challenges of, of starting, you know, being a CEO of, of a crowdfunding platform, in over the last 10 years, looking back, what, what, what do you think has been the number one or, or a handful of challenges that, that you have faced and, and come out the other side okay? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge, it kind of relates back to what I was sharing earlier of like, you're building two businesses at the same time. And so keeping supply and demand in balance is, is very, very hard. Even today, you know, nearly 10 years later, I mean, it's very challenging because you've got reputational risk on both sides. Right. When investors come to the marketplace, you want there to be high quality product, but we don't want to put up, you know, transactions that we haven't vetted and that we don't think are high quality. And then on the flip side, when real estate companies come to us to use the marketplace, we need to make sure that we have enough investors. Right. And so it's how do we grow the relationships with the real estate companies at the same speed as the relationships with investors? And you kind of got to just grow them both like this very, very slowly. You can't leapfrog one because if you leapfrog one, you're going to lose the trust of the other side. And so it's been very, very hard. You know, and that, that comes down to all kinds of decisions. It comes down to how much money do we spend on marketing? You know, who do we hire? And then what departments are we hiring in? 
Um, you know, how do we capitalize the parent company? How do we think about, you know, using our own balance sheet to capitalize transactions to make sure that our sponsors have certainty of capital? And so I'd say that's, that's been really challenging. Um, and it's still challenging today. And we just try and do the best that we can. And, and again, it goes back to being really transparent and upfront with people, right? And if that's on the investor side, you know, like I'll give you an example, we never used to do development transactions. Hmm. So prior to COVID, we really felt like it was not the right time to do development because we were worried about there being another downturn. And when you get caught, you know, in another downturn with a development transaction, it's not a good thing. And we felt like we really had to protect investors and really just said, we're not going to do any development on the platform. Now, post COVID, we actually are pretty bullish on development from an investment thesis perspective because we believe that there's going to be less properties that get built and that properties that deliver, you know, late 2022, early 2023 are going to have strong absorption kind of coming out of COVID and sort of the resurgence of the economy. And so there's been an educational process there with investors of like, look, these are riskier deals, right? We're allowing them on the marketplace. We're working with people that we think are high quality. We're still walking the land and making sure that, you know, we believe in those locations, but they're higher risk, right? You're not suddenly having the potential to earn double digit returns with less risk. This is not the reality. And so there's been a huge educational piece around that. Um, and that's been challenging too, right? To, to be able to, to be sort of the voice of the investor and do that in a way that treats the investors as smart, intelligent decision makers, which they are, right? Like our, our investors are incredibly sophisticated. They're incredibly smart. Um, and we want to also be a gatekeeper to make sure that they're not even seeing stuff that they shouldn't waste their time on. Right. And so that's been a, a hard balance to play because the reality is when you have, you know, we've got 220,000 investors on the database today, right? right. There are that's plenty awesome. of people in that database that, you know, can and should be investing in development deals because that is a fit for their risk profile. And there are plenty of people in that database that never should touch a development deal because it's not appropriate for their risk profile. And they have to make that decision, right? We don't make that decision for them. We're not their investment advisor. You know, they really have to have to make that decision themselves. But what we can do and what we feel very strongly about doing is educating them, right? And educating them on what are the risks and is this the appropriate risk for, you know, my investment profile? And they have to make the ultimate decision. But that's been challenging too, kind of playing that, that middle ground, if you will, of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate when the database gets so big that there's a subset of people that it's totally appropriate for and a subset of other people that it's totally inappropriate for. And I completely agree with that. You have to split the herd up of who is going to be in certain deals and who won't be in certain deals. Um, my, my question to you next is, is given what you've seen over the last 10 years with, you know, you've, you've vetted a lot of deals. Obviously deals have started, particularly in the historical multifamily space, deals are starting to get thinner and, and return expectations have to adjust. How have you been able to educate people particularly your 20, uh, 220,000 people about those return expectations as cap rates compress, as things get tighter uh, and more people come in essentially into the market, money's flooding the market uh, that, that, that causes things to be, be more expensive. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, at the end of the day, it's supply and demand, right? Like we can't, we can't manufacture something that doesn't exist. Right. And so we're just honest about it. You know, we're transparent about, you know, the underwriting, you know, our, our sponsors who work with us to post transactions on the platform, they share their financial models, right. And investors have the ability to dig into those. We host webinars so they can ask questions to the sponsors. They can talk about the transactions and, and we're writing thought leadership pieces, right. About what's going on in the world. You know, what, what the impact of inflation is, what the macroeconomic risks are, you know, what the, what the micro market dynamics are. So there's, you know, a lot of education and, 
you know, there's some investors who are going to opt out of investing, right? There's investors, you know, are, you know, if I made, I think you, you're going to ask me later about like a mistake, but a, a funny mistake that maybe isn't funny, but is in 2012, when we started the company, we should have bought everything, right? <laughs> we, we should have had like no credit standards and no underwriting standards because we would have looked like geniuses today, right? But that's not, that's not our culture. That's not how we're wired. That's not how we're operated. But like, that was a very big missed opportunity, right? Because I think that the, the 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018 vintages are like incredible real estate, right? right? At least yep. in today's markets, given how cap rates have compressed, assuming you put, you know, the right debt on it and you execute well. Um, and so I think that, you know, that, that's just the reality is we try and educate people. Some people are going to opt out. Some people are going to opt in. You know, we've got folks who, you know, made multifamily investments with us from 2012 on, and now they're only investing in, you know, office retail and industrial deals because they feel like the cap rates are compressed to a place they're not comfortable. We've got other people who, you know, are investing in multifamily deals where two years ago, that may have been a 16 or 17% projected return. And today it's a 14, 15, and they're comfortable with that, right? Because mm. they think to themselves, where else am I going to potentially make, you know, 13 or 14, 15% in a, in a risk adjusted place like multifamily? I mean, I still believe Multifamily is one of the best risk-adjusted returns in the market, even though capitals are compressed, returns are coming down. I don't, I don't know that I expect in my lifetime, though, to see the kind of vintage like the 2012, 13, 14 vintages. Like, I, I don't know that that comes around again. And so you have mm. to ask yourself, do I sit on the sidelines? What's the opportunity cost of my money just sitting in cash? Or am I comfortable with lower returns because the risk profile has gone down? And the risk profile has gone down because there's more capital in the market. And so there's more liquidity in the market. You just have to weigh that. And that's kind of up to each individual investor to, to make their own decision. No, you bring up a really good point of that compressing return. And, uh, and people, I talked to a lot of investors and some of them not so you know, educated, but not so much, but they, they're having this fantasy that it's got to return to those days of six, 7% cap rates and multifamily. And, and I know we're going to talk about a little, something you're really passionate in a minute, but with again back to supply and demand, with so when the housing crisis in the United States and across the world, there's a housing crisis in most Western countries that we can't build it fast enough at affordable rates. Um, that it's still very, very attractive for the person who is renting, and thus, as you talk about risk-adjusted returns, it's still a good return at twelve to fourteen percent compared to where you were maybe sixteen, seventeen, eighteen percent. And I think there's just been a big shock in the average retail investor, at least in my experience to try and re recalibrate that and still think this is a good return. And I understand why. And I think that's, you know, as, as, as an operator myself, as, as someone who's, who's constantly communicating with investors, making sure that they understand the why behind it. It's not just, this is a more riskier deal because the returns are lower and, and, and then being transparent. So, um, but with that being said, we're talking about affordable multifamily, uh, affordable housing, I should say. In the green room, before we press record, you mentioned some of your biggest passions are affordable housing. So do you want us to maybe start from the top for those people who aren't as familiar with, with what's going on in the United States today, with, you know, who, who aren't struggling to keep a roof over the head, but, but what, what, what are the factors affecting affordable housing and, and how we can make it better? if you have any thoughts on that, because <laughs> it's obviously a big question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I guess just taking a step back, it's really more of an emotional one than, than a financial one, but like I, I can never imagine not having a roof over my head. Right. And mm. the homelessness situation in, in our country has just gotten so atrocious. You know, I, I, everywhere I go, I see people who don't have a roof over their head. It just like makes me sad. You know, if mm. we just call it, call it out emotionally. It makes me very sad. And so I've gotten, 
very passionate about affordable housing. In addition, financially, I think it's a great financial instrument, right? I think that um, they're not making any more affordable housing. It doesn't make sense to build, right? So if you're going to build, you're going to build class A because you look at the cost of land, the cost of construction, the cost of raw materials like lumber, and you just can't build affordable housing without subsidies, right? Without tax abatements, without subsidies from the government, without, you know, a church donating land is an example, which is a deal that we, we saw recently. Um, but I just fundamentally believe that people deserve a roof over their heads, right? And um, so, so I feel passionate about that. And and I feel passionate about it being a good risk adjusted return for investors as well. You know, we, we actually, in investment committee, I just came straight from investment committee into this meeting and we were talking about an affordable deal. It's an affordable deal in Dallas um, under Allura, built in 2005. And, you know, our CEO, we were debating the pros and cons of it. And our CIO said, you know, the, the one thing I can tell you about this property is that rents are never going to go down. <laughs> and I can't say that of many properties, right? right? Of market rate properties. And like, it's, and, and we've got, you know, analysts on that and people that were training up. And so we try and have kind of really robust conversations. We use it as a training ground in addition to just a ground of like talking, you know, very deeply about deals. And it's true, right? Like rental rates are not going to go down in affordable housing projects, right? Because there's nowhere for them to go. Right. There's nowhere for these people to go. There, there, there's just not enough supply in the market. And that's sad. Right. Because we really should be able to take care of people who can't take care of themselves, or at least I believe that we should. And how you do that, you know, I don't want to get in the political conversation. Right. This isn't necessarily that there's a lot of different ways to fund it and to think about it, whether that's, you know, private capital or public capital or otherwise. But, but I do find that, you know, we've got a very wide divide between the haves and the have nots in this country. And for those of us that are fortunate enough to, you know, be able to help. I think that we should be helping. And so, you know, I'm a big proponent of affordable housing, both from the emotional side and the financial side. And what, what are you doing with Realty Mogul besides obviously just offering the more affordable projects on the platform? Is there anything else that you're looking into in terms of being a thought leader, being a platform where people can invest in, edu- going back to that education piece to, to, to sort of combine the emotion with, with the financial? Yeah, look, the financial side drives it, right? For better or worse, like money talks in our country. And so right. it's, it's this belief of like, let's finance and fund affordable housing. Because if you can create more liquidity there, you can create more demand from the financial markets and, and that helps, right? And so I think that, you know, there are platforms that will say, no, we're not going to do affordable housing or we don't believe in it or, and like, we, we really deeply believe in it. Um, so I think that we're, we're trying to make an impact from the financial side to, you know, to, to also destigmatize affordable housing. Right. And, and, you know, there's a lot of affordable housing across the country where you have sort of these slumlords. Right. I won't go into an affordable housing deal where where the business plan is to be a slumlords. Right. We, we've done other affordable housing deals where we're building pools, we're building parks, we're building playgrounds, we're partnering with nonprofits to do resume training. We're putting in, you know, free for the resident childcare so that they can work, you know, a full workday when their kids are out of school and sort of have coverage between that. 2.30 and, you know, five o'clock or six o'clock range. And so we, we've done and invested in a lot of projects like that. And I'm really, really proud of that. Um, one of, we run two public real estate investment trusts and one of the independent board directors on our, on our um, multifamily value add read is a woman named Flynn and she's the CEO of a nonprofit that provides services for affordable housing. So they do a lot of those services that I just described and like, we're really proud of that. We're really happy to, you know, be, in, in partnership with her. And so we're, we're trying to help where we can, but look, where we can is financially. We, we can fund these transactions, right? Because that's the business model and that's what we do. And, you know, we're not going to fund a deal just because it's an affordable housing deal. Like that's not how we operate, right? If we go back to our core values, like protect the investor is, is our core value. But 
at the end of the day, we think they're good financial instruments. We think we can help create additional liquidity. And through that and through CapEx budgets, you know, we can make these properties nicer to live, right? And, and, a, and a safe place. I and mean, we've, you know, looked at deals and done deals where, you know, there's been shootings on the property, right? And you need security and you need to put fences up and you need to put gating up and you need to make it a safe place for people to live. And so we've, you know, converted a lot of properties from places that I would say are, you know, unsafe to safe, right? And I'm really, really proud of that. And that's part of the CapEx budget. And again, it's, that's accretive to the project. That's accretive financially. That is good for investors, but at the same time, we're helping to, you know, change lives. And and that's, what could be better than that, right? Make money and change lives. It's, It's pretty cool. Couldn't have said it better myself. So with your crystal ball, looking back at 2012 and you're kicking yourself, you should have bought everything under the sun. What's your crystal ball telling you moving forward in the next 10 years or even even short term in where we're at with interest rates and cap rates and, and all that sort of stuff? One of the key lessons that I learned again during COVID is the lesson of the micro market. And so I don't have a macro crystal ball. Right. And what I mean by the lesson of the macro or the micro market rather is like different markets perform totally differently during COVID. You know, you take a market like Utah, where you actually had unemployment go down during COVID. Right. And you take a market like New Jersey, where unemployment, you know, skyrocketed during COVID. Right. And then you look at the micro markets in between all of those markets and like there's all kinds of craziness. Right. You look at what's going on in, you know, Dallas, Texas right now, where there's huge population growth, tons of companies that are coming in and saying, you know, that they're moving their headquarters there. And so you would think instinctually, I should go buy office in Dallas. Well, we think office is oversupplied in Dallas. So we're not buying office in Dallas, right? And so like, there's all of these micro market considerations to be had. And so I don't have a macroeconomic crystal ball, but I think that the micro crystal ball is try and de-risk deals in any way, shape or form that you can, right? And, and one of the ways to do that today is to lock in interest rates. You know, I... I we did deals, you know, three, four years ago where, you know, we locked interest rates in the fours. Today, that interest rate would be, you know, 3%, 320. And that was not the wrong decision, right? Like, I'm not kicking myself that that was the wrong decision because that's what we underwrote. It underwrote to good financial returns and we de-risked it, right? At the time, we thought that interest rates were relatively low. Now, in hindsight, that was, you know, not the right call, but it was the right call, right? Because of kind of that de-risking. So when I talk about de-risking, it's, Look at the supply and demand in the micro market. I'll give you another example. You know, Tampa's hot. Florida's hot. We like Tampa a lot. And yet the, the new starts on a new class A multifamily are concerning to me, right? Mm. And I don't want to own, you know, 2010 product in Tampa right now because that's going to compete with this onslaught of new product and that could push rates down. Now, we're looking at a deal in Tampa right now that's 1984 vintage. I like that vintage. And there's no amount of new product that is going to impact the rental rates on 1984 vintage because it's a totally different tenant base, right? And so as you start to, to de-risk, it's like really understand the micro market, supply and demand of the micro market, the impact of financing, right? And it's not to say on the financing side that we won't use, you know, bridge debt and floating rate debt. We do a lot of deals with bridge debt and floating rate debt because we think that that makes the most sense for the business plan. But there's a key decision to be made of when do you go refinance that? Do you refinance at month 24 because the renovations are done? Do you hold on until, you know, month 36, until every renovation is done? Do you hold on even further until month, you know, 48? In general, I'd rather de-risk the interest rate risk sooner. So, you know, refi closer to month 24 than month 48. In general, again, it's sort of, you have to, you have to depend on the micro market. Um, but that's where my crystal ball is, just try and de-risk by looking at the micro fundamentals and not the macro fundamentals. Because I think that you get very lost today if you look at the macro. Um, and there's so much nuance in real estate across markets. 
I, I completely agree. One of the big things that I learned when I first moved to the United States, particularly coming out of 2008, was the US, and, and this is as an international Australian reading the news, the US housing market, right? And the first thing I realized when I moved to the United States, there's four, over 400 MSAs in the United States. And within each MSA, there's a north, south, east, west, good side of the tracks, bad side of the tracks. And it was just so up like to surface level that was like blanketing the US housing markets the issue, right? But yet you look at some, some economies, some markets that didn't were completely unaffected like Austin, Texas coming out of 2008. Like it goes back to your point of you have to be, real estate is local and you have to understand the local trends and what's happening in those exact markets because also the United States is the behemoth of commercial yielding product when you compare it to other yields across other Western countries, you compare it to Sydney, you compare it to Hong Kong, you compare it to Europe, you do not get the same yields as you do in this country. And that's, I won't even get into that, but <laughs> that's, it's just so important to, to not lose sight of that. And then, but obviously coupling, I did exactly the same thing on my first ever two deals, 4.35%. I thought that was a smoking deal. Freddie fix for seven years. I'm kicking myself. I could have sold that deal three times over by now. Right. But you know, at the time, you did what the best that we thought things were going to the moon. So I, I sympathize with you on terms of having that incredible uh, grounded approach and understanding like your example of Tampa versus say Utah versus New Jersey. So I um, really, really like that. I guess as we come to the end of the show, what is the future for Realty Mogul moving forward? What's the future for yourself personally moving forward? And, and, and where do you see the company in 10 years time? Yeah, we're going to continue doing what we're doing. You know, I mean, like we're, we're slow and steady. Hopefully there's no surprises, right? Like if, if we're doing a good job, we're, we're just going to continue to keep growing and, you know, provide strong risk adjusted return transactions to investors and work with great operating partners and, you know, be in the real estate business. You know, you have to stay in the game, right? You have to do deals. You have to keep educating yourself. And so we don't have some, you know, grand plan to change the company or revolutionize the company. I mean, we're, we're on the cutting edge. I think we're doing a great job. There's always room for improvement. We just want to keep doing what we're doing, which is sourcing, you know, great deals, working with great partners and making sure that we're communicating and, and being trusted by investors. One, one last question I have for you, and this is just a more of a personal question is, do you see, I guess maybe I'm answering my own question, but do you see investors going around you in the future and going directly to sponsors? Is that, is that a risk for Realty Mogul at some point in the future? Look, my belief is that you have to earn the respect of people, sure. right? And so if we're not doing a good job, well, then who am I to say that they shouldn't go around us, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I look back at that and it's like, build a great business, do what you say you're going to do, you know, provide the asset management services and the administrative services that we say that we're going to do. And, and I think that investors are willing to pay for that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we've had so many examples of, you know, where we've stepped in and some of it's, some of it's silly, right? Some of it is, they didn't do the K-1 right, right? And there was going to be implications two or three years down the road, right? And we caught that and, and we provided that. Some of it is, you know, we'll force a sale of an asset because we see supply and demand characteristics differently than a partner, right? Some of it is we're going to look through the financials and we're going to do an assessment of where the property is performing and give them these really nice, pretty, concise, you know, recaps, right? And investors, so different investors are willing to, you know, pay for different things. But I think that at the end of the day, like, if we do a good job, there's, a, there's room for us. If we don't do a good job, there's not, and there shouldn't mm. be. And I'm mm. perfectly okay with that. And, and I'm looking to run and build and continue running and building an organization where we, we provide a meaningful service, right? And we provide a place where investors can trust what they're seeing. 
and investors, albeit, you know, they still have to do their own due diligence. We don't know if it's appropriate, you know, for their risk profile, for where they're at in their lives, you know, all of those types of things. If they have, you know, seven kids or no kids and discretionary income or no discretionary income, you know, that's not our position to say whether the, the, the deal is an appropriate deal for them. But um, again, I, I think if we do a nice job that they won't, and if we don't do a nice job, then they will. Very self-aware answer. I like it. <laughs> Look, Julian, at the end of every show, we like to go into the lightning round of the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Sure. What is the number one habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? On track. Uh, I don't know that it's on track towards my goals, but I, I would say that probably one of the most influential habits in my life is my gratitude practice. Mm. So every day before I go to bed, three things I'm grateful for. Every day when I wake up, three things that I'm grateful for. And it's really changed the myelin in my brain. Like that may sound kind of quirky and, and a little crazy, it. but like <laughs> it has genuinely changed my brain. And it's probably like the single most important daily habit that I do for myself that allows me to, you know, be in a place where I can even have goals. That's awesome. No, I think it's super important to be grateful and, and mindfulness and having a little bit of stillness in the morning of, of just before you, the, the rush of the day. So awesome stuff. Question number two, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? It's probably my dad. You know, my dad has always been a, a key sort of mentor to me and someone that I've looked up to. You know, he, he's run businesses since he was in his early 20s, didn't graduate college very entrepreneurial, you know, and has been just a, a great professional and CEO and, and business owner in addition to a great father. And so I, I look up to him immensely. That's awesome. Well done, dad. Uh, question number three is what's the most influential tool in your business? When I say tool, it could be a physical tool, like a phone or a journal, or it could be a piece of software that you can't run the business without. What is it? I, I, I don't know, maybe strange answer, but I think it's my ears. I think it's listening. <laughs> Listen. You know, and like taking the time to listen and to seek input and to make sure that my team feels heard and to talk through deals. I mean, sometimes, you know, our, our CIO and I will like sit on the phone together for two hours and just talk through deals. You know, mm. what are the risks? What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? What's going on in this micro market? You know, what are the crime stats? What's, you know, it's just listening and, and being willing, you know, to learn and to, to listen. That's awesome. Maybe a corny answer. But no, corny, but I like it. I like it. I like <laughs> it. Question number four. In one sentence, what has been the biggest, and I want to say valuable or mistake or lesson that you've learned in your career? And what did you learn from that mistake or failure? I mean, not investing more early on was, was probably the biggest one for us, to be totally honest. I mean, I look back now and it's like, we, we would have been such a different company if we you know had moved faster and we put out more capital. And I, I was... I was cautious, right? So I mm. guess the lesson is be less cautious, although I'm not really wired that way. Um, you don't strike me like that. I think it's just have, have more confidence, you know, when there's an investment thesis that we believe in, like go for it, right? right? Because at the end of the day, you still own physical real estate, you know, and, and I think that as long as you have staying power and you can hold long-term, I'm, I'm a big believer in real estate, you know, over the long-term. But I think it also, the other side of the coin is help you become disciplined, right? In terms of your approach yeah. to, to, yeah. to, to real estate. So, so maybe some of the practices are, you know, the other side is like, we now develop the systems we have to be more bullish because we know more, right? So um, awesome stuff. Last question, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your circle. Where do they go? Yeah. I mean, sign up at realtormobile.com. If you're not, it's free to sign up. And once you become a member, you know, you'll start getting our, our flow of real estate transactions. And so those are always fun. If you're ready to invest now, great. If not, you know, be a watcher and, and learn. I've, I've had 
you know, so many young people reach out to me and say, I just signed up for Realty Mogul and I see your deals. And like, I've learned so much from looking at real deals and watching real webinars and like being in the conversation. Um, also feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. You can just type my name and let me know that you, you heard me on, on Reed's podcast and would be happy to, uh, to connect and go from there. Awesome. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think the big thing for me was you're, you're building two businesses with the, with the crowdfunding platform. I think it was, it's such a, as you said it so simply, but it is so true. It's two facing sides of the coin. But for me, narrow your focus, details matter and sleep well at night. The three core messages, which we all as owners and operators want to do, right? I, I, I myself have gray hair from, from maybe not sleeping well at night because you're thinking about stuff that can go wrong. But running a business and having a good culture like that helps you build that brand recognition and helps people come back and having repeat business and put you at the pinnacle of, of the crowdfunding industry. So, so that's what I took away. Well done. Did I leave anything out? No, I appreciate it. That's awesome. Well, look, again, thank you so much for jumping on the show today. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Jillian. If you do want to check out their stuff, remember, head over to realtymogul.com. Reach out to them. They've got so many incredible deals on their platform right now. And hopefully this interview is giving you a little bit of insight about how they go and vet those deals. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. If you do like this show, easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Mm-hmm.